This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week from Gadigal Land. I'm David Lipson. Coming up, as floods hit the East Coast yet again, there are calls for a complete rethink on how to handle and plan for disaster. We look overseas to see what's working. And the government's first wellbeing budget is being handed down next week. What is it? And will it really improve life for Australians? But first... British politics has set a new record, and it's not one that anyone in Westminster would be proud of. It's been a dramatic day in Britain. The Prime Minister, Liz Truss, has resigned after only 45 days in office. At 1.30 this afternoon, Liz Truss emerged outside this door and announced that she had spoken to the King and was resigning. She is now the shortest-serving Prime Minister in British history. Liz Truss spent just six weeks at Number 10 Downing Street before the pressure and the outright chaos within her Conservative Party became unbearable, with sackings, resignations and dozens of her Tory colleagues calling for her to go. Given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. The rot was baked into the Prime Minister's platform, a promise of Thatcher-esque tax cuts funded by borrowed money in an effort to stimulate a sputtering economy. When her mini-budget was handed down, the markets tanked, the pound took a dive, and everyday life for British people got even harder. I think one thing about British politics is it, it rarely shocks anymore because it's been so amazing for the last six or seven years. But I've been taken aback. I assumed the Prime Minister would be allowed to stay in power until the budget, to preserve a little bit of stability, to ensure the markets didn't overreact. So I was very, very surprised when I saw that podium go outside number 10 and her make that statement. I didn't expect Liz Trust to hang around for long, but I didn't expect it to be this quick and brutal. Anand Menon is Director of UK in a Changing Europe, an independent research organisation based in London. There are two reasons, I think, why this happened to her. One, down to her, not a very good prime minister, made some very, very bad economic choices, brought the markets down on our heads. So part of the story is about her. But the bigger part of the story, and perhaps the more interesting part of the story, is the fact that since we voted to leave the European Union, our politics has been realigning. And the realignment in the Conservative Party is still ongoing. And we have a governing party that cannot agree internally what it stands for. Is it the anti-immigration party or does it think immigration is good for growth? Is it the party that wants high taxes or is it the party that wants to nick Labour voters by investing in poorer regions? There are real substantive policy differences inside the Conservatives and I think that's why they're struggling to find unity and stability under one leader. Let's just take a step back. Liz Truss dumped after just 45 days, but when do you think her political death spiral really began? Very, very quickly indeed. I think it began the moment that that mini-budget was announced by Kwasi Kwarteng. High tax rates damage Britain's competitiveness. They reduce the incentive to work, to invest and to start a business. That showed several things. Firstly, that she was reckless. Secondly, that she wasn't willing to take advice from those around her. I mean, we know that Treasury officials were trying to say this could be problematic. And I think once as Prime Minister, in the teeth of one of the worst economic crises we've seen for a while, 
you very clearly make the impact of that crisis worse on the British people, then essentially you're toast. It's only a matter of time at that point. Yeah, they, these were in particular the, the tax cuts for the wealthy that were funded by borrowings, which sent the, the markets into a spiral. But she campaigned to be leader with, with that tax cuts policy, didn't she? So it, it was hardly a surprise that that is what she would do as leader. Well, I mean, that speaks to a whole different issue, which is the issue of how our parties select their leaders, because the memberships of the Tory and Labour parties over the last few years have respectively given us Liz Truss and Jeremy Corbyn, neither of whom the broader electorate were very keen on at all. But on that budget itself, I'd just say it was partly what she did, though, as you said, what she did came as no surprise. It was as much how she did it. Because what she did was she sacked the most senior uh, civil servant from the Treasury immediately. She criticised the Bank of England consistently during her leadership campaign. And the government refused to ask for a forecast of the impact of that budget from the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is there to ensure that the, the government knows what it's doing. And I think it was as much that sign of a kind of slash and burn approach to process as it was the substance that spooked the markets. Interesting. So a new leader is expected to be picked next week. Is it clear who might be in the running? Uh, Rishi Sunak, who Liz Truss uh, defeated last time, is widely expected to be a candidate. Penny Mordaunt, who came third last time, is widely expected to be a candidate. The one big unknown that's causing a lot of chatter, not least because his odds have slashed with the bookmakers, is Boris Johnson. <laughs> so the short answer is we're not sure yet, but Boris Johnson might be one of them, which will uh, make it interesting, to say the least. It, it really would. I mean, he did say, uh, hasta la vista, I'll be back, didn't he? I think on the way out. How would the British public react to a return of of Boris Johnson? Well, you never know, do you? But I'd say several things. Firstly, Boris Johnson's popularity with the public was on the wane even before Partygate and was very much on the wane after Partygate. He was a very, very unpopular prime minister by the time he left office. So the Conservative MPs didn't just get rid of him because of parties or the whiff of corruption. They got rid of him because they didn't think he was capable of winning an election anymore. And there is no sign that he's got that electoral mojo back. At the time that he left, I think 60% of the public thought he should resign as prime minister. So it's very curious with Boris Johnson is you'll hear Tory MPs at the moment saying, you know, he won as an 80-seat majority, he could win again. There's precious little evidence from the polling that suggests that that's true. So what about the process of bringing in a new prime minister? Is it going to be the same as as we saw with Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, a weeks-long sort of internal navel-gazing process, or, or will it be neater than that this time around? It's going to be a lot quicker. We might have a prime minister on Monday. Failing that, we're going to have a prime minister within a week of that. The reason? Because they've changed the rules. Uh, quite simply, what the party grandees, the so-called 1922 committee, have decided is you have to have 100 MPs backing you to even count as a candidate, which is a high bar given that there's only just over 300 Conservative MPs. So you can't get that wide field. You might even only get two candidates. If you get two candidates and the MPs vote on Monday and knock it down to one, I'm not even sure at that point whether the process goes on. You might have a prime minister by Monday evening. If they have to have a a decider, what the party have said 
curiously enough, is we'll put it to an online vote of members. Now, I say curiously for several reasons. One, when Liz Truss was elected, the party hierarchy insisted it had to take all summer because this wouldn't be a proper process without hustings and loads and loads of conversations and meeting the members. They scrapped that. Also curious because it means that the Conservative Party has to, at very short notice, organise an online election amongst an electorate that is predominantly old, and I suspect many of whom don't have the internet, and, crucially, make sure it's secure, which is going to be no mean feat uh, in such a short space of time. So there are all sorts of questions around this process. So all of this really speaks to a party in disarray. It also seems to be kind of a reminder that in, in politics, certainly when you're in government, what you do matters. I mean, you, you can win the argument, you can win the debate, you can even win the election, but if the policies aren't working or don't work well, uh, eventually it comes back to bite you. No, no, absolutely. And this is, make no mistake, a very, very tough time to be in government. We've got this huge economic crisis. So real problems facing households here. Now, the problem for the government, I think, is had they not done that mini budget, they might have got away with arguing that, look, this is global. Everyone in Europe has got energy price hikes. Everyone has got inflation. This isn't down to anything we've done. It's a global problem. But the perception is there, probably rightly, that our problems are slightly worse than everyone else's because of mistakes that they made. And I think coming back from that is going to be very hard. The other point I'd make is parties often change their leaders and parties have been in the doldrums with leaders that no one wanted to vote for. They have tended in the past to do this in opposition. What is remarkable about this is the Conservative Party is having a fight for its soul, changing its leader, whilst nominally in charge of the country. And that's what makes this so potentially dangerous. Sounds a bit familiar for us in Australia. Uh, the, the, op <laughs> the opposition leader, Keir Starmer, has been calling for a general election. There isn't meant to be one until December 2024. Is an early poll likely or, or even possible? It's possible. Uh, it's possible in the sense that you could have a whole series of defections from the Conservative Party that lose them their majority. Um, likely, absolutely not. The phrase that Turkey's voting for Christmas is used quite often, quite often in this connection here because the Tories are now some 30 points behind in the polls. I find it vanishingly unlikely that Conservative MPs are going to say, oh, look, seeing as we're 30 points behind in the polls, it'd be a great time to have a general election. I think the knee-jerk reaction is going to be, let's wait and see something might come up. So my, my hunch at the moment is the election is going to be pretty late on in 2024 to give you know the economy time to settle down and give a new Prime Minister time to make their mark. That's Anand Menon, the director of UK in a Changing Europe. With a shocking sense of familiarity, floods have dominated the news this week as rivers rose in Victoria, Tasmania and New South Wales. Oh, I've never seen anything like this, even, even Dad. Um, you know, he's been around this area his whole life and uh, he's seen plenty of water but not like this. In some areas, high water records were smashed. The devastation is widespread. In the Victorian town of Rochester, it's estimated that 85% of the town has been damaged by floodwaters. We're underwater. We've had no help, absolutely no help. There's frustration too about how authorities have managed the flood emergency. Our government really hasn't done anything in 48 years to actually prevent this from happening. My concern um, is that the information that people had wasn't accurate enough and wasn't good enough. Professor Barbara Norman is Chair of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Canberra. 
I do feel a bit frustrated, but I also know that's not helpful. But it has been for myself nearly 20 years. So whether it's on issues around uh, coasts and climate change or bushfires or floods, we need to be much better prepared and we need to be planning our cities and towns for the future changing climates. And we need to be doing that yesterday, but having not done that yesterday particularly well, we need to be starting it immediately. Some communities have been flooded repeatedly this year and and we're being told the threat will continue throughout summer. Are we getting any better at preparing for this sort of thing? Well, we're getting better, I think, at responding, certainly looking at the Victorian floods. There seems to be communities working much more closely with all levels of government, so that's that's a positive side. But in terms of planning and preparing for the future, I think we haven't really learnt the lessons of the past and we are not investing in good forward land use planning and we're not making what I believe should be the case in Australia and uh, make climate change risks a mandatory consideration and in any land use planning. I say that uh, because that builds, in fact, upon uh, a key recommendation that came out of the Royal Commission into Natural Disasters after the very extreme uh, bushfires of 2019-20, and I'm really extending that to the multiple climate risks that we're facing, increasing the, the level of risk, the scale of risk, and this cumulative impact that's occurring on communities, leaving them very exhausted. So we have a long way to go. So we've had these warnings, these recommendations, as you say, for more than a century. What's holding us back from, from moving in that direction? Well, what was holding us back, I think, significantly was a, a lack of an ability to even discuss climate change at the national level. And that might not seem a lot, but in fact, it has a huge impact on what happens below the subnational governments, local governments, communities. So that's been a really big break over the last 10 years. The next is something that's not really new. There's a lot of vested interests in developing uh, land the way it's always been developed. Let's just build the next suburb the way we built the last suburb and the last suburb and That would have to be one of the fastest ways to get approvals through all the different authorities. But as we expand our cities, we're going into more marginal lands that are placing people at greater risk. And, you know, we should not be building any more development or infrastructure on flood-prone land or lands at risk. No more. But also, importantly, we've lost a lot of lives. I mean, this is a very serious matter over the last 10 years. One of the other big political problems for various governments is housing affordability. So how do we balance the need for more housing and and more affordable housing in outer suburbs and regional areas when these same areas are becoming more flood and fire prone? Mm, That's a really good question. And I'm often asked this question and uh, it's not a helpful question. It's a good question from you, (laughs) but it's not a helpful question in that sense. We can't really pit one against the other. Good planning, good land use planning will provide for affordable housing in appropriate locations that are not placing already vulnerable people in more vulnerable situations, which is a shocking scenario if you think about it. And so uh, in good planning, um, it will mean as those regional towns grow that we'll have increased densities, in other words, developing up on the existing urban landscape rather than out. It will mean taking a a much more holistic approach to catchment management rather than just 
you know, concreting the landscape, which is another big issue we've had that's developed over many years. So the water's got nowhere to go, basically. One of the casualties over the last, I would argue, 20 years has been a preoccupation with uh, wanting to speed up the development process, wanting to cut the red tape to achieve more housing development, as, as you suggest. One of the consequences, very significant consequences, is no funding or very little funding for the front end, for the forward planning, for the good strategic planning that looks at all these issues together and can come up with some very good solutions. Right, so that's the planning element and that's a major element of all of this. What are some of the other immediate changes that could be put in place that that would make an immediate difference? Well, we certainly lack, compared to other countries, a very good database, publicly accessible, very importantly, timely, up-to-date, real-time, ideally, on like flooding risks or fire risks, either predicted or occurring at the time. The Biden administration, the White House, announced only a month ago as part of its big package a, a really significant national climate change portal and I've just looked at it, went through it today, I was testing it. You can put in your, your neighbourhood, your suburb, and a whole range of data comes up immediately about uh, the risks, but not only the risks, but uh, what would happen if, uh, you know, scenario one, scenario two, scenario three occurs, depending on how extreme the climate impacts might be. So really quite sophisticated occurring. We don't have anything like that in this country. What about the question of, of education uh, for people? Um, you know, we, we seem to think as Australians we know about fires, we know about floods. Is that the reality? Uh, look, education is uh, so important, even just about data. I mean, I've noticed in the last uh, week or two quite a bit of confusion coming through the reports as to what what does that mean by, you know, a metre more of, of water coming through and does that mean I'll survive or not survive? People are really being quite fearful and, and that's that's not a good situation at all. So there does need to be a lot of education. Uh, there also needs to be an investment in uh, training our next generation in the sciences and climate science and climate change adaptation. And huge investment in education in this space would have multiple returns. So it sounds like there's a lot to do. Do you have any optimism that that we'll get there in the time that's required? I have uh, some some good days, some not so good days. I think the faster we can move, it's imperative. But there are a lot of exhausted people out there as well. And so I think uh, we need to be uh, sort of re-energised, led by governments saying they'll, they'll actually do things, move on to the how, not just the discussion, not just targets, but the how are we going to achieve these outcomes. So, uh, yes, I'm still optimistic, but the window is very narrow and it has to be done this decade. That's Professor Barbara Norman from the University of Canberra. She's author of a new book out this week called Urban Planning for Climate Change. The Labor government will hand down its first budget next week and for months we've been warned that there won't be a big cash splash. Difficult global outlook coupled with the pandemic recovery means the government faces a tough road ahead as it tries to ease the cost of living without putting more pressure on inflation. But for the first time, this budget will include a focus on well-being. Treasurer Jim Chalmers says he's trying to measure what matters to Australians. You know, I've always seen economic strength, uh, social mobility and the well-being of our people as complementary and not at odds with each other. 
the budget's primary focus is this inflation challenge, but it's also about how do we make our economy stronger and broader and more inclusive and more sustainable. Uh, and so to do that, I think we can find better ways to measure what that means for people. It's a model that's been used overseas. New Zealand, Scotland and Wales all measure well-being in their budgets. Political economist Catherine Trebek is co-founder of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and strategic advisor to the Centre for Policy Development. Well, I think what we're going to see next week with the the Treasurer's first budget is starting of a conversation. So you're not just looking at averages and per capita measures, for example, in gross domestic product, but you're really laying out how are different communities in Australia faring, how are different regions, those sorts of questions, so that then you can say, right, where does investment need to be made? And But also the key thing is saying, If those certain parts of Australia are falling behind, taking the time to ask why, so not just pile in spending and celebrate that in its own right. And so often that's the traditional approach that we see spending perhaps as as a good thing when actually so often that spending can be a failure because we're just putting sticking plasters on things where, you know, attending to something going wrong. I mean, one of the really obvious examples in recent times is these floods that we're seeing across the eastern part of Australia. That's going to require a lot of spending in terms of rebuilding building and, and so on. What would have been better is if we'd stopped the climate change that was happening to, to, to exacerbate those floods in the first place. Similarly, in health systems, in security, policing, the wellbeing economy approach is ultimately about saying, how can we get things right first time round? And the budget has a really key role in that in terms of broadening our understanding of what's going wrong, broadening our understanding of what works and driving different ways of working within government. You've looked closely at wellbeing budgets overseas. Can you give us a sense of how they've worked in other countries? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the one first answer is there is no template. This is still experimental. And so there's various different approaches that are emerging from different governments. So some governments, for example, will start tagging different aspects of spending, for example, whether it's spending on the environment or on children or on anti-poverty measures or on gender, for example. I think adding to that, going a few steps further, is about taking an overall approach to some really high-level transformative goals. So we see that particularly in New Zealand, in Wales, in Scotland. And Scotland, where where I've just moved back from, for example, is using this agenda to start to reshape how the economy operates. So they're investing in building a more circular economy. They're starting to really proactively support sorts of businesses that are much more aligned to what people and planet need. So worker cooperatives, social enterprises, for example, it's all about the, the living wage, gender equality and participatory budgeting. So those sorts of initiatives are the sorts of activities you'd expect to see more of when a government takes a wellbeing economy approach. Some countries have had these wellbeing budgets in place for several years. Have they seen any real change, any positive change? This is a long-term shifting, really, of how we set up the macro economy. So it's not going to be something that instantaneously will will flick a switch and and we'll we'll see see results. And I think also we've seen some pretty strong headwinds against this. I mean, the coronavirus crisis would have set back some of the potential change that would have been set in place. For example, in New Zealand, who started this a couple of years before Corona. So I think it's still too early to tell. I think what is exciting is we're already seeing different ways of working within government. And New Zealand's a really good example 
example of that because their wellbeing budget approach is really driving cross-departmental collaboration that enables public servants to take that more holistic upstream approach rather than just operating in their own separate silos disconnected from each other. So that's where we're starting to see this impact really play out in the ways of working. The coalition has been fairly scathing about this approach, certainly the former government. I was thinking yesterday, as the member for Rankin was coming into the chamber, fresh from his ashram, deep in the, uh, deep in the mountains of the Himalayas, barefoot into the chamber, but robes flowing, incense burning, beads in one hand, well-being budget in the other, I thought to myself, what would the yoga position that the member for Rankin would assume? The treasurer will resume his seat. What's your response to their criticisms? Well, one, I think this is essentially about more efficient doing ways of doing government. And so I think anyone who's really keen to say can, we can do better in stopping spe- wasteful spending that we could have avoided if we designed the economy and done government better, I think that's going to appeal across the political divides because it's about smarter governing. It's about smarter spending. It's about smarter investing. So I think anyone who really engages with this conversation in, in good faith, I think there's a lot there to, to like and and get get their hands into and, and to support. I think this has to be a not an apolitical agenda as, as well. I think this is really about how do we create the sort of Australia that we want to see today, tomorrow and into the future. Yeah, smarter spending. I mean, we keep hearing though that the cupboard is pretty bare, that this budget is tight. There's no real cash splash coming. So is there much point to these sorts of plans without new money to spend in these areas? Well, I think this is an approach of saying, can we avoid the need for some of that spending in the first place? And hence why it's got to be a a long-term conversation, not just one budget to the next annual budget. This really has to be a multi-year, even decade-long agenda that's about how do we transform the economy so that it's not set up in a way that is creating so much damage that's necessitating spending and so at the downstream level, your know, end of pipeline, five o'clock in the afternoon type spending where where failure has been created, whether it's people who are needing extra housing support because the housing market's not operating in a way that's supported supporting people, whether it's the labour market not supporting people to put food on the table for their families, whether it's all the environmental impacts that's requiring a lot of spending. So in a time of straightened public finances, I think this is a more urgent conversation than ever. And yes, that's going to take time to attend to that, but it's not about the magnitude of spending. It's really about setting up the economy for the Australia that we really want to see. That's political economist Catherine Trebek from the Centre for Policy Development. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Isabel Masali, Nick Grimm, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. 